Hey there, welcome to Blockhead, the Peanuts tribute podcast from a cartoonist's point of view. My name is Jeff Grogan, and I'll be your host for the next hour or so in a series of conversations with comics creators about their lives, their work, and comics. So sit back and enjoy. Hey gang, welcome to part two of my interview with Dennis Kitchen, cartoonist, publisher, artist's agent, author, curator, debonair man about town, you name it, Dennis Kitchen is it, particularly in regard to comics. What a great cartoonist, debuting in 1969 with Mom's Homemade Comics, one of the first underground comics of the era, and then going on to being publisher of one of the leading lights of independent comics in the last third of the 20th century, Kitchen Sink Press, which published so many great comics. Well, we're here to talk to Dennis about all of those things, and uh, I think you're gonna you're gonna enjoy it just as much as you enjoyed the first part. And at the end, we only got through half of his extraordinary career. So Dennis has promised to come back sometime early in 2022, and we will continue the discussion then. And, uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I hope you you are too. In the meantime, I just want to say congratulations to friend of the show. Ray Billingsley, who is the winner of the Rubin Award this year for Cartoonist of the Year for his outstanding work on Curtis. It's a long time overdue, long time in coming, and boy, I couldn't be happier uh, that Ray has won. It's just it's so well-deserved, and Curtis has just been really amazing in this last year, dealing with COVID and all kinds of other things, and it's just for over 30 years now, uh, Ray has maintained a level of consistency in his work that is just superlative. So, congratulations, Ray. I'm so happy for you, as I know all of the Blockhead listeners are. Without further ado, then, let's just get right to the show, okay? Part two of my interview with Dennis Kitchen. Dennis Kitchen and myself in conversation. Um, but then I published Bijou, and suddenly... And I was very conscientious, as you might imagine, because uh, we both knew how the print mint operated. And I wanted to show Jay and Skip that I was serious about this. So I went to great pains to get them a proper accounting and really hustle and get the books out there. And it paid off. The books did well. And it led to then more Bijou and Crumb passing through town and offering me his new book, which ended up selling in six figures. And it just grew like topsy, I guess. Uh, it was never something I planned. <laughs> it's just as life, as John Lennon said, right? Life happens to you while you're busy yep. making other plans. And um, and so the, the thing that strikes me, though, and I'm thinking of this solely as somebody who's tried to print a few things myself over the time, is one, there must have been a great deal of mystery about... Um, what the distribution system was yeah. at that point, because the first time you just sort of lucked, not lucked into it, but it was happenstance. It just sort of like somebody was traveling here and somebody's traveling there. And they, but then 
how did you get clued into the the network of head shops that you know eventually established the distribution uh, uh, for underground comics? Well, that's a great question, and um, the answer to that is related to another thing I had my hands in, which was I was a co-founder of an alternative weekly paper in Milwaukee called the Bugle American, later just the Bugle. And um, that started in 1971. And uh, there was an organization, there were enough underground papers in North America that an organization formed called the, I think it was the Alternative Press Syndicate. Mm -hmm. And if you joined it, the and again remember everybody's hippy dippy back then mm-hmm. and so if you were a member of that syndicate it meant you could reprint anything you wanted from another paper and you didn't have to pay for it wow and so uh you also had to uh put every other member of the syndicate on your comp list so we would send out i forget how many there were maybe 50, 75 newspapers we would send the bugle to, and in turn, we would get copies of all those papers. They would come into the office, and remember, I'm spending part of my time there and part of my time in my apartment, which was early on the headquarters for the comic company. But when those comps came in, most of the other staff members had no real interest in them. I did because a lot of them had covers by underground papers or articles I thought were interesting. But the light bulb went off over my head because I saw there were ads for head shops in those papers. Uh And so I started clipping or copying the address and the name of every head shop I saw in every other underground newspaper. And that's how I built the original system. So, I mean, in essence, you invented the distribution. Well, I no, I wouldn't go that far because Printment already existed. Printment had a network that they built by selling psychedelic posters. So they probably they found head shops their own way. So they had their own network. I don't know. We, We certainly overlapped. I didn't invent it. I just happened to. Out of what's what's the saying you know uh, necessity is the mother of invention yeah oh my gosh well that that i mean it's incredible but but it really is fortuitous in a sense that you know you were a member of that syndicate and you were able to to have the wherewithal to realize this was the way to go well so i had i had i had just a little bit of will eisner in me and that i was I some part of my brain was thinking like a businessman because it had to yeah, yeah. I mean, you were responsible for yourself and you wanted to establish that, but you were also now responsible for for other people uh, and their work. And, uh, you know, it, it really is a great motivation. But uh, I have to I mean, I think it's, it's amazing, really, because this is all pre-Internet and pre-Google and pre all. <laughs> yeah. So, what were so, those? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's amazing. So, um so will eisner no, i'm sorry no will eisner but so robert Crow, well no before i get to that before i get to just another pragmatic concern where's the working capital if you don't mind me asking because i know you know you were you you made you're a self-made man and and so i know that you know your background you didn't have a lot of money coming up and where where's the and i know you weren't going to banks for loans so where was the working capital coming from yeah no i had no i had no money um i had um, a roommate, a second roommate, not the one who went to Woodstock, 
but the other roommate loaned me a thousand dollars and that was the startup um, i found out a little later that uh, when ron turner founded last gasp a year or two later he did it i think i can speak about this now he had a silent partner who was a drug dealer <laughs> who had to launder his money <laughs> so so he invested eighty thousand dollars in last gasp mm-hmm. so ron had an 80 to 1 advantage in terms of working <laughs> capital <laughs> i would have died for that kind of money sure but i just made it work and the way i made it work was for the first couple of years i didn't pay myself a cent i any money that i made came from freelance jobs because uh-huh. i didn't make any money from the bugle either and so I was juggling freelance work with two different business operations. And uh, after a couple of years, it got to the point where I could draw a modest salary. And at that point, I also finally got a business partner who could take a lot of the load off. And uh, so, well, yeah, you, know, you work with what you have. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you got a firm footing and were able to, you know, work the company became what it became. But um, and so I'm I'm curious, too, there's a moment where you move from Milwaukee out to the farm. And was the farm a, a fixer upper? Was it uh, the kind of place that you had to do a lot of work on uh, when you moved out there? I mean, did that take up a lot of your time? Well, when I bought it, it was a functioning farm. The farmer I got it from just got a bigger farm with more land. He kept most of the acreage. He sold me the house, the barn, the outbuildings, and 10 acres, which was fine for me. So it was functioning, and the farmhouse was a reasonable old, you know, rickety, uh, (laughs) uh, I I wouldn't say a great place to live, and uh, it, it, it didn't need some fixing up. I uh, I invited other people to live out there. It was kind of, uh, I wouldn't say a commune, but I had three or four friends, including my brother mm-hmm. and a couple of friends who moved out and, and helped to some degree to get it into livable shape. And we got the outbuildings so that some people started to even live in them. And the barn, which when I went there was literally um, full of hay and the bottom part of the barn was about a foot deep in pig shit. Oh man. Um, which uh, I couldn't get anyone else to help me clean out. So I did it <laughs> myself because I, I happen to have no sense of smell uh, oh, from, yeah. from an early industrial accident. So, so the pig shit didn't bother me as much. So yes, that was going on too. And, uh, and I tried to be a gentleman farmer with the uh, chickens and briefly pigs and uh, that that didn't last very long either. But but basically, it was just a place with a lot of room. And so I went from an apartment in Milwaukee to a place where I actually could store, you know, countless cartons of uh, comic books and, uh, and 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 a steadily growing staff. So yeah. first I rented space in the small town of Princeton, but then um, after a few years, I just realized. I could convert the barn into an office complex, and that's what I did. It's that's great. It's un, it's really it's quite amazing, really, when you think about it. And and when, as I'm listening to it, and you know, just somebody listening to it, I'm like, this is such. I mean, it sounds so romantic at this point. <laughs> 
left. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm especially, sure the, especially the shit shoveling. <laughs> Even that, it's like, oh, you know, working on the farm. I mean, it also sounds like it could have been an early Tom Hanks movie, you know, trying to deal yeah. with all of these things uh, and then publish comics at the same time. I mean, if somebody doesn't turn this into a movie, man, I I, it's it really should be but uh, the, um, right, the rights are available Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, plus it would be a great you know also have you ever thought about right doing a graphic memoir i have i have thought about it but i haven't got past the thinking part <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess the, you know for some people it just seems like natural and then there you know i keep saying i'm going to do a memoir of my own life because of this that and the other thing because i want to write it down before i forget it and I never get around to it. There's always some other stupid project that takes yeah. precedence. But so, you know, we we're talking about that that period of time and uh, the late 60s. And there is this like people are traveling. You know, there's like this. Not only are the comics connecting in various cities, but the cartoonists are all, you know, connecting with each other, even though there's no organized uh, uh conventions at that time where that's how people get together now they were just like you know jay lynch and skip williamson and and robert crumb are all kind of making their way out uh to see you in milwaukee and uh and then traveling to to san francisco and there's a lot seems like there's a lot of migration happening at that time there was the the artists of course originated everywhere but san francisco early on became the Mecca. And there were four primary publishers. Three, of course, were out there. I was the sole outlier. And I thought about San Francisco. I visited it a few times and, you know, it's a wonderful, what's not to love about San Francisco, except for even then the high rent. And mm -hmm. where I was both in Milwaukee and then certainly in Princeton, when I had my own land and my own building, um, rent was not even a factor for me, and so that gave me a certain edge on my competitors, I thought. And so being a very practical Midwesterner, I just thought, why should I move west and pay high rent when I have essentially no rent here? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what prevailed. Um, it also allowed me to focus on the work because I didn't have the distractions. If I was in San Francisco, there would have been parties almost every night. There would have been all the the music scene going on in the Bay Area. Think about it, the political activity in the Bay Area. I don't know that I could have really accomplished what I did in a place like San Francisco as opposed to a kind of a cultural wasteland where i ended up <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and also but it seems to me that you were also very i don't want to say necessarily business-like because you don't strike me although you're a very successful businessman you also don't strike me as a typical businessman but there there is this um you know you had a job to do and you got it done i mean i, I was reading a, an anecdote in one of the books about you where you know your friends are going off to get stoned or trip you know take acid and and you were like gee sounds like fun but i've got this book to get out <laughs> that's right and they ended up in a car accident and almost got killed um, yeah. but i got my cover finished um yeah i think there were <clears throat> that was a constant uh, factor and and believe me i love the party as much as anyone but i had a work discipline and i think that was what perhaps distinguished me from some colleagues or maybe hippies in general um i just felt 
that I needed to get the job done, as you said. And also I took seriously that other artists were depending on me to get their books printed and distributed and for that royalty check to come every quarter or so. And I took that part very seriously because I knew how tough it was struggling as a freelancer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because you were doing the same thing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Trying, trying to make money as a freelancer. So now the way you met Crum was he, he sort of, he met you at your apartment, right? He was brought to your apartment. Yeah, He was visiting uh, Jay in mm-hmm. Chicago and neither of them drive. So I think Jay called and he said, we're going to take the bus up to Milwaukee. So I met them at the bus station, picked them up. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that was my first meeting. Although I had, corresponded with crumb again earlier um mm-hmm. you know so so we kind of knew each other through through the mail but it's always great to meet someone in person yeah were your first letters back and forth were they long letters or are they just kind of short um you know they varied they're all at columbia university now so anyone doing research can go and see them but uh you know crumb would occasionally illustrate them with goofy little drawings of himself or or when uh, I, I think early on, I, I, I talked about swapping some records for some of his art. And so he would send me drawings of how to practice the records so they wouldn't break. And just things like that, that, you know, nobody at the time would have thought much of. But in retrospect, they're, they're lovely, you know, sure. little artifacts. Um, and, and the thing about Crum is he's, he's a terrific correspondent. So once you once you get to know him, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, he reveals all kinds of things cause he has no, uh, no, no filter. Li- yeah, no filter. <laughs> and, uh, so always fun, but again, in person, it's different. And, uh, I think it was when I saw him in person then that he committed to do a comic for me that ended up being homegrown and, um, and after that, there were, you know, many others. Many others, yeah. And your working relationship with him as a publisher, did it ever become fraught with any kind of, you know, the usual kinds of uh, uh, difficulties between, you know, publisher and author? Well, not the kind you would expect. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you a perfect example of what it was like working with Crum. <clears throat> so when he gave me Homegrown, remember he was complaining about some of his other publishers printment was one of them but you know he was spreading them around to everyone and i wanted to impress him so i really hustled with homegrown and i really i made sure he got his quarterly reports and i made sure the checks went to him even though his first wife dana was frequently cashing the checks and robert didn't even know about it but so he told me he was doing a new comic called high tone and I thought, well, I I deserve to do that because I've sent you all these checks regularly and everything. And he said, nah, I think I'm going to give that to someone else who needs it more. Uh-huh. So there he was. He was being kind of a socialist of I'm going to give to <laughs> give on the basis of need, not on uh, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> any other factor. And and I realized, okay, this is different. I understand. In fact, I even appreciated his philosophy, but I didn't feel I had been rewarded for a, a job well done. And that was what was different about dealing with Robert. Right. And and so did you work that out? I mean, he published a number of things. with Yeah. You. So basically, you just had to be patient and it would be your turn. <laughs> okay. You know? 
or else or else I had to come up with an idea. And oftentimes it would be with merchandise, like, why don't we make this? Like when I, when I realized he was a, a musician, um, I said, why don't we do a, a record? And he said, eh, I don't know. And I realized he collected 78s and I collected 78 RPM jukeboxes. So I right. said, I said, why don't we do a 78? And he said, oh, that sounds like fun. Okay. So he and his band came to Milwaukee. We recorded them professionally. And then, of course, I had to figure out how to make a 78, which was even in 1971 or so was an obsolete format that hadn't been out since at least, what, early 50s or so? Yeah. Oh, my and, God. Uh, so that was a whole other process of, uh, of I finally tracked down a, a shop in Nashville, Tennessee that literally had to uncover a, a machine covered with a tarp and 20 years of dust <laughs> to to get him to be able to make it. But That's we did it. We did it because, it, again, it was a challenge. It was fun. And when we actually had it, then it was the next challenge, which was <laughs> how do you sell an obsolete record? <laughs> Especially when your audience is young and they have, if they have a, a record player, it's going to play 33s, not 78 or 45. I'm just trying to remember, you know, did, was there, uh, was there a, a, on some of the turntables you could go, you could switch from 45 to 33. Did, was there a 78 on some of them? Well, now if you buy one today, you're more likely to because, uh, audio files who are into vinyl yeah they probably have all three speeds but back in the 70s if you were a uh, 20 uh, uh, something mm -hmm. you did you know unless you were living at home and your parents hi-fi was what you played your records on no you could yeah. not play a 78 so we sold it on the basis that it was crumb of course and that it was uh, an interesting artifact and you might be able to play it if you tried hard enough. Our real break was I sent review copies to Rolling Stone and Cream and places like that and they plugged it and so uh, we ended up, I think we had printed 5,000 which my partner at the time thought was insanely high but we sold them all reprinted another 5,000 and sold those and as sales started to wane and I said let's do a third printing and he said absolutely not and he put an end to our 78 rpm uh, business <laughs> has that recording ever been transferred to 33 or to uh, I think, um yes i think it's on um uh the the first or second album that uh, they did with the yazoo records oh okay Okay, it's it's really interesting. So, are you do you are you still in communication with Robert Crumb or? Yeah, you... no, I I am regularly, although now it's in a more unsatisfactory form of email, largely yeah. occasional yeah. phone call. But he doesn't write as much anymore, mm -hmm. and um, he has an assistant who helps with email, and it's just the way things get done more efficiently. I think. Sure. And also, I think he probably was soured on the fact that when he would write people, including fans, letters, they would end up on eBay or at auction. And, oh, yeah. you know, that's kind of demoralizing when you realize, you know. Yeah, yeah people, 
just reaching out to do that. That's terrible. But, you know, uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this whole thing about letter writing. And it is such a shame. I, you know, you were talking about it before and it's something I've talked about with friends as well from from the past. I used to write copious letters to friends back and forth and used to work on them. You know, you'd spend a, sure. a, a weekend, you know, reformulating what you wanted to say and ripping up paper and then rewriting it. And, <laughs> you know, right. And and I often wonder what happened to the love letter, you know, because that was something that uh, we used to do, too. Right. You know, you fall in love with somebody and you write letters, you know, and uh, I don't know that that's happening anymore. To, you know, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I haven't had to write one in a long time. <laughs> but yeah, that's a very good point. At a certain point, that's a, a good thing that you're not, you know, worried about writing those. I guess you you send you send love texts now. I guess that's what they do. Well, yeah, sexting. I guess it's not the yeah. same thing. But so you know, so kitchen sink started off, you know, I guess you could say humbly, but then it, it grew relatively quickly to the point at which you were publishing. Uh, umpteen titles, I don't know how many titles, but there was Bijou Funnies and there was Snarf and there was Bizarre Sex and and Dope Comics and others. I mean, it just, you know, grew and grew. And that went on for quite some time. Um, the, 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 you know, underground market was successful enough to handle all of these different titles. Yep. Was there anybody in there uh, uh, along the way who you wish, who you never published, who you wish you had? Well, there's Gilbert Shelton, but he had his own company called Ripoff. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, right. Um, well, you know, there were some that I didn't publish as much as I would like, but, but you know, there certainly were a handful. Um, I never did any complete book by, say, uh, Greg Irons or Robert Williams or mm-hmm. even Wilson. Um, so... There were some guys, yeah, who lived in the Bay Area who just it was just easier and they had relationships with the the Bay mm-hmm. Area publishers, but they might occasionally do a guest story or a guest cover for me. I mean, even now that I think about it, even even Gilbert, you know, did a guest cover for uh, Grateful Dead comics and mm-hmm. uh, he may have done another thing or two I'm forgetting. So, I mean, I was in touch with almost everybody. But that didn't necessarily mean I was publishing them because it was okay to be a friend with someone who published with someone else. It wasn't like a requirement of the friendship. And, <laughs> you know, most most of the artists spread their work around. Well, I was going to say, so you were friends with people just to be friends with them, not just, <laughs> that's just oh, to strange as that sounds, Jeff. Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, so, so um, I'm I'm just thinking along this time though, you still wanted to be a cartoonist. I mean, that was still your dream. And yep. we, so, you know, there were uh, stories here and there, uh, little pieces here and there, but, but you, like, there's no, there wasn't a book by just by Dennis Kitchen after a while. Right. I mean, um, as we go into that period of time, uh, right. you didn't, you know, you didn't have the opportunity. So how, I mean, that must've been a bittersweet thing to handle. It was. It was. And I can tell you um, there were many times when I was uh, editing an anthology where I would pencil myself in and I would say, "Okay, I'm doing a four page story for Snarf number eight or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then as the deadline, we get closer, I realize, oh, Christ, I'm never going to be able to do this. So I put it off till issue number nine. Well, that would just happen over and over. So the irony is 
I think most of the material I've done, you know, <laughs> over the years has been for other publishers and other editors because I would take their deadline seriously. And and your own you could put off and Absolutely. which is always the way. Yep. You know, you're one of those people who just puts other people before yourself. And uh, well, I don't know about that, but it, but that was a pattern. And um, but at least I was asked enough by other people that I did put out some things because I was just busy. And remember, I'm also trying to raise a family and there's right. other things going on. Right. So, yeah, you've got kids, tuning but... is a slow process and I'm a slow artist. You know, at, at, at my best, I can maybe do a half a page a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, you got to put aside a lot of half a days to come up with a story. Yeah, sure. And, and uh, you know, if you're trying to make sure the comic gets out on time and you're on the phone with people trying to get them to get their work in on time and right. all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things that have to be dealt with in a small operation and it's all falling on you when when are you going to find time to you know uh sit down and do the drawing and that's that's the thing um so time just goes by before we know it as we as both of us know as you grow older it just it doesn't slow down so uh so in in the early 70s then you're you know you're publishing all these other things and then all of a sudden um you you start working for stan lee or rather stan lee reaches out to you and you publish comics book. Um, so that must have been an interesting development. And so how did, tell us how that came about. <clears throat> well, it took a while. I mean, first of all, when I mentioned I sent uh, mom's number one to Harvey, I sent one to Stan Lee and some others. And <clears throat> so Stan not only wrote back, he wrote back, uh, Probably, you know, more than just a, a sentence or two it was actually a very friendly, complimentary letter, which caused me to write back. And the next thing I know, we we were truly pen pals. And one of the things you mentioned, you know, the lost art of writing letters, I loved letterheads. And so I always had a variety of letterheads. Um, one of my earliest one was uh, the corporate symbol was uh, an octopus smoking a cigar and in each tentacle, he had a division of Crupper Kitchen Sink, which was not complete fantasy because we did have divisions like the the record label and the comic division and the Krupp distribution. And we had a retail store and an art studio and so on. So I, every tentacle held a legitimate division. And each division then typically had its own letterhead. So when I would write Stan, I would use a different letterhead. And one of them really cracked him up. And uh, and that led to just, I think, a different level of, uh, of communication. And before I knew it, he called me out of the blue and he, and he said, why don't you come and work for me? He said, I could use a guy like you in the bullpen. And, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but basically I said, uh, I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered, thank you, but I'm I'm enjoying what I'm doing here. And he would get so frustrated because he thought, I think correctly, that almost any fan or artist or editor he called would jump at the chance to work at Marvel. And I played hard to get, but I wasn't playing it. I really just wasn't interested. I was enjoying my own thing. Mm-hmm. So he had called me at least two or three times and We'd have a nice conversation, but it would always end with thanks, but no thanks. And then came the summer of 73. And in 1973, after enjoying, 
you know, a few years of real growth in undergrounds. Um, we had our first crisis, which was a combination of factors. One was the Supreme Court Miller versus Constitution, which redefined obscenity and threw it back into local communities to define. And that left undergrounds susceptible to local politics. And the other factor we hadn't quite anticipated was we sold on a non-return basis, which was great for us. Mm -hmm. But if you were a head shop or another store that really wasn't watching the inventory carefully and picking what you ordered carefully, your rack started to get cluttered with things that were not selling well. And so we call that a, a glut, you know. Right. And so we saw sales plummeting that summer and my partner and I despaired of pulling out of the tailspin and around that time Stan made I think probably <laughs> his one last call and he got me at just the right time and I said you know Stan let's talk and he said all right you're coming out to New York to work for me and I said well let's talk so he flew me out and he introduced me to some of his key staffers and he showed me an office that I could have and so on. And, and I said, look, I, 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 I have to tell you, I don't want to move to New York, but I'm, I'm interested in doing something with you. Why don't we do something that I can do from Wisconsin? And I guarantee you it'll be on time. I'll be reliable, but you can give that office to someone else. And you can pay me, uh, you know, a salary that I won't argue with because a dollar in Wisconsin goes further than New York City. So all my arguments kind of made sense to him. And he kind of reluctantly said, well, maybe we can do that. What do you want to do? So that's how then the magazine evolved. And, um, uh, you know, and of course, it got complicated because uh, it was all handshakes. Nothing was really put in writing. And. I told him that the guys and the women that I was working with were uh, accustomed to owning their own copyright, keeping the original art. And and he was like, eh, you know, we don't do that here, Den. And I said, well, then th th we're going to have a problem. And he said, well, all right, we can make an exception. You know, you're not even in the office and you're doing this crazy magazine and probably just going to get me in trouble anyway. And <laughs> so he said, all right. And so we had a handshake on it. But and then his lawyers said, well, we have to at least have a blanket copyright in Marvel's name, but then we'll revert the rights to you. And it got more complicated. But what really was the problem was, uh, and again, it might have been sales. I never really saw sales figures. I know they printed 200,000 of each issue. But after the third issue came out, and I already delivered number four, number five, Stan called and he said, uh, he said, I'm going to have to kill this magazine. It's not working for us. And I anticipated that it wasn't going to last forever. But he didn't really give an explicit reason. And it took a while for me to figure out from various sources who were in the office, which was there was a great resentment from all the other Marvel bullpen artists and freelancers and contributors who were working under the old work for hire rules and who didn't get their art back. And they started asking Stan why these hippies were getting a special deal they weren't getting. 
And it was kind of a Pandora's box that he had opened and realized he was kind of in a fix. And the quickest fix was to kill the magazine. Mm -hmm. And so he did. I'm wondering how, you know, I'm just wondering how people found out. I mean, those kinds of things are usually not public. You know, in an environment like that, I, I'm... Yeah, no, I think I think you're being naive, Jeff. Um, <laughs> I suppose I am. Um, remember, it was um, Oscar Wilde. Oh, Oscar Wilde. Okay. Oh, yeah. From the One of his quotes was, "When bankers dine together, they discuss art. <laughs> Artists dine together, they discuss money." Yeah. <laughs> I, I guarantee you. Um, when it came to things like. Uh, copyrights and getting your art back uh and and that sort of thing artist gossip is yeah as much as anyone yeah uh and it only takes one person and it spreads even yeah, in the sure. internet era yeah so w was that while it was going on was it were you comfortable with it with the situation working for marvel were the artists comfortable with it was it something you discussed was it Ma i mean um, how well, yeah, I mean, I was comfortable with it because basically it saved my business mm -hmm. and I got a salary, which at the time in 1973 was $15,000. That doesn't sound like much now, but in 1973, that was pretty good money, mm -hmm. especially in the Midwest. And so I didn't have to draw any salary from kitchen sink and it allowed the company to really recover from that, what we call the crash of 73. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the artists were also, you know, feeling the pinch. And while our advances were typically $25 a page in those days, Marvel paid $100 a page. So they're getting four times as much money, at least up front. I mean, with Kitchen Sink, you might get residuals with reprints and so on, but it was still a four to one ratio. And when they got their art back and were assured that they would ultimately own the copyright, it was kind of a win-win for almost everybody, but there were a handful of artists who just on principle would not work for Marvel. And that included Crumb, mm -hmm. which I, I knew, and it included Jay Lynch and a couple of others, Spiegelman. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, but I still was able to attract a lot of top people like Justin Green and Kim Deitch and Trina Robbins and even yeah. Wilson and go down the list. And so um, I was comfortable with it partly because I had grown up being a Marvel fan. I, I Some of the underground guys, you know, kind of hated Marvel, but I didn't. I, I enjoyed Spider-Man and Fantastic Four when they first started coming out. And I that was my 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 youthful, uh, you mm -hmm. know, uh, uh, hook. I was hooked on them. And I had gotten to know Stan and like Stan personally. And again, you know, he's kind of controversial and there are people who think he, he wasn't the greatest, but for me, he was fair. He was a gentleman and he treated me right. He kept his promises. And so the whole experiment lasted about a year, maybe a little more than a year. And by the time it was over, Kitchen Sink had recovered and went on to, you know, do what it did the rest of its existence. And, um, so it was perfect timing in a way. And I've often thought that had Stan not called me when he did, I don't know that, uh, you know, we might have lasted that crisis. It's one of those, again, big ifs.
it's interesting to hear, you know, coming from the outside, talking about Stan, you know, Stan is in the middle of a very different environment and Marvel's a corporate entity. And um, that whole attitude, someone from the underground working within that environment, you could see how that could be an exploitative kind of uh, situation, you know, um, but I guess it wasn't. And that's kind of heartening to hear. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting, too. A couple of years later, didn't uh, Spiegelman put out Arcade? Didn't that come out uh, a couple of years later? It was kind of built on the comic um, model. I, in think, a way. I think it was even earlier than a couple of years. Yeah, I, I think Spiegelman and Bill Griffith, who co-edited that, um, both basically thought, um, why don't we do a magazine um, because the format in some ways is more attractive and you could have some non-comic content. They both I think, love the idea of a magazine. So they got Printment to sign on to mm. do it. And uh, I'm the first to say it was a superior publication in large part because those two and uh, and Crumb were contributors. It was mm -hmm. terrific. The, the catch is Arcade... Um, was only again distributed through the headshop channels and it sold only a small fraction of what uh, comics book did because they didn't have Marvel's distribution clout. Right. And so while it was what I call an aesthetic success, it really lasted, I think the same number of issues. I think there were five comics book and maybe six arcades. Mm -hmm. So neither was what you would call a success commercially. Um, but they were both experimental and, you know, I think I'm, I'm glad they both existed. Sure. Sure. So around this period of time, um, we're talking about the mid seventies and the, 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 um, the, the network of head shops, that's that distribution is kind of dying out. So w through the remainder of the seventies, how did kitchen sink get its material out to the world? Well, as you indicate, things change and evolve. And so the uh, the market started to open up for graphic novels, you know, following Eisner's comic track with God in 1978. Steadily, more books like that came out and um, more traditional bookstores were willing to carry them, or at least the best of them. Certainly Mouse's uh, Pulitzer Prize helped foster that, and um, Frank Miller and Alan Moore and, and others. And uh, I forget what year it was, but I ended up doing a distribution deal with Berkeley Books. So as as you know today, there smaller publishers tend to affiliate with larger publishers to plug into their distribution. And so early on, Berkeley was my uh, connection. And it, and it worked to some degree, but ultimately it was too early. It was, uh, it was at a point where still most bookstores were not terribly interested or at all interested in carrying graphic novels. And I learned that the hard way when I would have semi-annual meetings with the uh, sales and marketing crew of Berkeley when there would be maybe uh, 20 salespeople in a room and uh, 18 of them would be nodding off when, you know, I and the other graphic novel publishers would talk about our line. They just didn't get it themselves. Yeah. And I found out that the two 
and I'm exaggerating a little bit about the nodding off, but the two who really were enthused, one was in New England, one was in Chicago, and we had much better sales in those areas where the sales reps actually got it and had some enthusiasm when they go into those shops. Sure. So it was an early lesson in, you know, neither the market nor the reps and ultimately the organization itself was ready to mm-hmm. distribute graphic novels on a wide scale. That steadily evolved to the point where today, you know, you walk into a Barnes and Noble or most independent bookstores, you're going to see a sizable oh, yeah. collection. It took a while to get to that point. Yeah. And I mean, we're at a point now, I work at a university and, you know, uh, literature, you know, English departments are, are teaching graphic novels, you know, um, it's a totally different world and totally different environment. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, before we go was your love of comic strips. Um, you know, we're talking about the past and one of the things that Kitchen Sink did, and it, and as you said, there weren't a lot of collections around, but really, you know, you passionately looked for great comic strips to 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 reprint and put into new collections i mean i'm thinking of stuff you know like well first of all lil abner uh obviously um but then you know during a period of time when nancy was not exactly you know the the um the pick of Ah, of many cartoonists nancy was something that that uh you put out multiple uh collections of and things like, you know, I mean, there's a wonderful book that I've never seen, but I've, I've only seen images of the cover, uh, Fly, the collection of Russell Keaton aviation art. Who's going, I mean, you know, that's a name that <laughs> right. people don't recall, but boy, he was a terrific artist. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff there. It, what is it about those titles and, and how did you feel about bringing them back to the market? Did, was that something that was passionate for you? Well, it was, and you also have to, Again, consider that I was growing up at a time when comics took two essential forms, comic books and comic strips. Mm-hmm. And I regularly devoured both because in those days, most families got at least one daily newspaper delivered to their home. And almost every newspaper, with the exception of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, had a comics page or two. And on Sunday, you had this explosion of color strips in a section of its own. So those were marvelous in their own right. And they were separate, largely, other than occasional reprints, they were separate from the comic book industry, which was regarded uh, at the time as a far less sophisticated uh, business uh, aimed at a younger and, you know, mm-hmm a different audience, but I, I devoured both. And what I liked about the daily strips was partly the continuity of, of even, even humor strip like little Abner. It had a continuity. It wasn't a gag a day strip and others could go on for weeks and weeks at a time before you reached a conclusion. Whereas the comic books uh, were almost always self-contained And you had uh, some genres in comic books that would never be in a newspaper, like a horror or war. Uh, And so there was not much overlap between the two, and I loved them both. And comics I could collect because they were artifacts and you could put them in a box or a shelf. The strips weren't really practical. I wasn't a clipper. So, you know, you saw them one day, they were gone the next. Mm -hmm. So as I got to the point where 
I'm like, wow, I, I am a publisher and I can kind of do whatever I want as long as I can stay in business. I would love to see a lot of those strips collected because they're ethereal. It's kind of like Snapchat. You see it, then it disappears. Yeah. And so that was a personal passion. And so I went after favorites. Little Abner probably was my favorite strip growing up. El Cap captured my imagination probably unlike any other. On a personal level, the more I found about him as a man was increasingly a turnoff. But it was the strips that I read that were, you know, very important sure. to me at the time. And the same with others that I collected, the the, the Flash Gordon and the the alley oops and and and, it's, and and you know Nancy was a personal favorite when it was embarrassing to <laughs> admit you liked Ernie Bushmiller. Now there's a real cult around him. Yeah, yeah. Countless cartoonists are paying homage to Bushmiller and Nancy, and uh, so so yeah, it's a combination that I don't think um, the average uh, person today necessarily has because first of all, a much smaller percentage of the population gets a daily newspaper mm-hmm. that's sadly a, a dying medium and even the newspapers that carry comics carry fewer comics and between us they ain't as good as they used to be yeah yeah mm-hmm. and uh and again comic collectors you know when i was young they were a dime and i could uh, i could get a lot for my allowance and today you know you got to drop four or five bucks for a comic book so you got to have a lot of money to go and buy a handful of comics. Yeah. It's a different era in just so many ways. So I reflect, you know, my times and my tastes, and it is what it is. Um, it's not something I think the average person today could relate to. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Library of American Comics sort of picked up, you know, from IDW is sort of picked up where you left off and Fanagraphics too. Um, and I like to think that, you know, it was your example that pointed the way towards those kinds of, of collections, um, the new, you know, the collection of Flash Gordon or whatnot from IDW and all of those. Right. Um, I think you opened the the doorway to success with those. I guess one of the things that, that you know, a number of things come to mind in regard to that endeavor. And, and one has to be, it must have been kind of daunting, as we were saying before, to track down the material and then secure <clears throat> the rights. It I mean, was. That must have been a discussion, too. Yeah, yeah, I... I would always try, I mean, you'd start with the syndicate, but the syndicates were generally extremely frustrating to deal with on a number of levels. Uh, First of all, you know, they own the copyrights. Right. And so the artist didn't even share uh, in the royalties. I, I, I remember when I was doing alley-oop and I talked to the licensing person at uh, whatever syndicate it was. And I said, well, uh, at that time, uh, uh, V.T. Hamlin was still alive, and I said, will he be getting a portion of this? And she said, uh, hold on. And then she came back a couple of minutes later, and she said, no, uh, the syndicate is the owner of the copyrights, and he will not be getting a share. And I thought, how shitty is that? So I tracked him down, and I paid him separately to do signed uh, a tip-in plates for the hardcover editions. He was at that time in his 90s and in a wow. 
and in a nursing home, and he could barely scrawl his name. But he did, and he got at least paid for that. But it was an early example to me of just syndicates not being fair with the original creators. So when um, I would even ask them, do you have syndicate proofs? More often than not, they said, nah. And so I would have to then track it down through either the family, because sometimes the artist would get a set of proofs and would keep them. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes private collectors would acquire them um, through whatever means. And so as a collector, I began assembling them often long before I would get the rights to do a book, because often one, the first depended on the second because it would be pointless to get the rights to reprint something if I had no clean source material. Right. And and uh, and and I learned early on. I think it was Nostalgia Press who did a handful of volumes that preceded me, and they were done from newspaper clippings, and it looked like it. Yeah. And uh, to me, that was very unsatisfactory. That's the last resort to yeah. use clippings. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I have a couple of those books, and uh, it's funny. I mean, we loved them at the time because that's what we had, but then you compare them with, you know, for example, the reprint, the, the collections today of Flash Gordon and Prince Valiant. There's no, there's no comparison. So, um, and so, I think you know it's interesting to, to hear you talk about this because it makes me realize, and I'm not sure that the audience knows or realizes this, but the the model that you established at Kitchen Sink with your artists, with those people who published with you, um, was really, in so many ways, the model upon which, uh, you know, we hope uh, that publishers will deal deal with their artists today. But it, it certainly made big changes. Uh, you know, going forward in the way that a number of publishers see and work with their artists. I mean, it's still, there are still, you know, work for hire situations, obviously, but, um, but I think the model that you set really opened the eyes and established a working model that, that changed the industry in a lot of ways in the way it treats and respects its artists. Well, if you're right, then that's a legacy I'm proud of. Uh, at the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And it was what I call the golden rule. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me that all through your, your career, you've you've done the right thing to do. And uh, it's it's really to me, it's it's a you're a great exemplar uh, of, of, you know, not only a publisher, but also a great cartoonist. You know, Dennis, um, we you mentioned, you know, it's getting late and we've been talking for a couple of hours. And um, so, you know, maybe it is time that we wind it up. But let's you know can we can we arrange to do a second interview sometime in the in the future because or you know relatively near future because i think you know there's a whole second half of your career to talk about um you know we'll 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 pick up on the early 70s and move on (laughs) yeah you know i mean there's a lot to talk about so uh still with kitchen sink and with your work and uh and afterwards because uh there's still things going on and i also want to talk to you about your collecting because that seems to be an offshoot or it goes hand in hand with um with the the publications of the comic strips um in some ways that seems to be a corollary to collecting looking for all this material because hunting down stuff is very much part of what a collector does yeah Uh, 
you know it's sort of part of your passion so if we can do that that would be just so great um, sure sure well uh we'll pick it up another time jeff it was fun oh, chatting yeah and i hope uh, i hope some of your listeners made it all the way through well, I think Dennis's fears are unfounded because uh, we're all here at the end. And I think if you didn't sit through that, then you don't love the history of comics. There's so much to learn here. And uh, it's such a great story. And Dennis is a wonderful raconteur, great storyteller. Obviously, anybody in comics is a storyteller, and Dennis is one of the greats. So, so I'm looking forward to another chance to talk to Dennis early in 2022 completing this story uh, up to the present anyway and I'm sure there's much more to go so look forward to that uh, I've got a bunch of stuff lined up coming up very soon so there'll be a couple more shows before the year is out so please be on the lookout for them be sure to follow Dennis at Dennis that's with one N Dennis D-E-N-I-S underscore kitchen underscore art on Instagram and you can check out his stuff, his work, uh, lots of stuff that he's got for sale at DennisKitchen.com. Follow me on Instagram at GreenScreenComic. One word, GreenScreenComic. That's where I'm posting most of my stuff these days. All about GreenScreen, the comic book that I'm working on, uh, whatever other current stuff I'm doing. There's stuff about my upcoming print shop, so you can find out stuff about that there. I, there's all kinds of stuff. It's really about the only social media I'm doing right now. So follow me on Instagram at Green Screen Comic. That's where you'll hear updates about the show. And of course, if you are interested in supporting the show, head on over to patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan, G-E-O-F-F-G-R-O-G-A-N, where any amount that you can contribute to the upkeep and, and support of this show is greatly welcome. That's patreon.com slash Jeff Grogan. That'll do it for now. I will see you soon. Uh, in the meantime, if I don't see you before the holiday, uh, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Enjoy the fall, and uh, but I'm hoping to be back before then. So I'll hold back on it for now and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Be well, be happy, be safe. And once again, as always, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.